Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman, and on today's show, we're going to briefly review the very public story of Log4j over the last month or so, but then we're going to go behind the scenes to understand how this impacted researchers. What were they doing beyond simply messing up all their holiday plans and uh, what it may mean for your portfolio of security solutions? So to do this, we've invited Renee Burton, the Senior Director of Threat Intelligence R&D at Infoblox. Thank you for joining us today, Renee. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And we also have Drew McFarlane, the Senior Product Manager over Infoblox's Threat Intelligence Integration, Management, and Distribution Technologies. He's uh, returning to us. Um, and uh, so thanks for coming back for our new season, Drew. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I want to set the baseline um, and be honest and with our uh, audience here. We're just going to very briefly go over what you know the big milestones were around Log4j and why it was not just your typical vulnerability. I mean, vulnerabilities are coming out all the time. I mean, Patch Tuesday, I remember December, there was one Patch Tuesday of Microsoft with over 120 different vulnerabilities. So this happens all the time. So before we go beyond and behind the scenes, let's talk about um, that story. Now, all of this began with an Apache release or advisory on December 9th. And on the same day, they released a patch. So that, that's wonderful. Patch came out along with the notification. But why wasn't that the end of it? Drew, you want to start us off? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, first of all, uh, usually when you have a circumstance like that where a patch comes out and, the, and you know, on the same day as uh, something was announced, that whatever it is that is trying to patch has been around for a little bit already. So they're, they're releasing the patch so that they can at least provide some sort of a solution to people. They don't want to necessarily announce something unless it's really critical uh, that without having some sort of an option for people to try to remediate it as well. Unfortunately, what ends up happening is once a, you know, once an exploit is public domain, people know about it, there ends up being this land rush. And it's really a race between the, the bad guys uh, going out there, trying to find anybody out there that has not patched. Uh, and it's a, you know, sort of versus the people who are hosting a, a site and going through and actually deploying that patch. So, you know, the faster people can deploy the patch, the, the you know, faster that they can make sure that they can try to avoid some of that uh, bad behavior. But at the same point in time, you know, a lot of people can't necessarily patch immediately as soon as the patch is, uh, is available. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, and, and that's one of the big problems is that, you know, enterprises, they, they just can't patch on, on, a, on a dime, particularly not mission critical systems. And that's what this affected. This wasn't like a, a desktop thing that they might be more easily you know, rolling out. I mean, Log4j was used in mission critical systems, right? Absolutely. It's, and that's one of the problems is Log4j is, is a very commonly used uh, library. So you're finding it in a lot of places that you know, and unfortunately, in a lot of places where people didn't even realize that it was there. So it's not one of those things like, you know, if, if you're patching a, Apache, you kind of know that you have Apache. If you're running, uh, you know, a lot of different apps, seeing as that this was just a, a basic logging library, it was used by a lot of different software. And as a result, you know, it's, first of all, people have to figure out, you know, am I actually even vulnerable to this? Do I have software that use this? And then from there, you're trying to figure out, you know, what patches are available for the app that you that you've got. So it, it is that that kind of rush, as I said, from that standpoint. Unfortunately, at this point in time, because of the prevalence of this library, 
this is a this is a problem that's going to be living with us for a long time. It's it's kind of like COVID. Nobody thought that we'd be still dealing with it two and a half years later. You know, we're going to be dealing with this for quite some time. Well, and I, I had, you know, visions of, of heart bleed and other things that we've had like this that were at an infrastructure level. Um, you know, a, a lot of us didn't realize that, you know, and, and I have kids who are programmers, grandkids who are programmers now. Um, and I, I talked to them about the good old days when, you know, I didn't have libraries. I had to write all my code, you know, rrr, rrr, rrr. Um, but, you know, today uh, when they compile something, um, one of them was telling me that he's pretty sure that when he writes code and compiles it, cause he's writing lots of small utilities, but they use a lot of libraries. He says less than 10% of the code in that executable is mine. The other 90% is stuff from other people. And so when we use these libraries, you know, we're also incorporating all of their bugs and you can't troubleshoot those, you know, you, you can't fix their, their stuff. But this was also not just one vulnerability. Um, they patched it, and then a little while later, they came out with another announcement and another patch, and another announcement, another patch. Um, they weren't the only ones doing this. In the middle of all of this, I think it was December 12th, Microsoft came out with a patch uh, for a vulnerability. That actually introduced new vulnerabilities, <laughs> and they had to release multiple patches. So December was an ugly month for, <laughs> for vendors trying to get patches out. Um, but like you said, um, all of those were the types of things is that wasn't a, you know, just a standard patch. This is underlying in a lot of mission critical systems. So they didn't have one patch to roll out. They had multiple patches. Now, yeah. it was so bad, though, that governments got involved real quick. I mean, you know, the the announcement for the first one was on the 9th. On the 10th, you had the UK, uh, uh, you know, their regulatory group. Uh, what is it? Um, UK's National Cybersecurity Center. They issued a warning. Uh, CISU, CISA came out with one on the next day. It just kept following, you know, one after the other. So um, this got really nasty pretty quick. Uh, matter of fact, um, it was about two weeks ago. Yeah, January 4th in the U.S., the Federal Trade Commission actually now has put in fines for people that may not have patched yet. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit, a little bit more. Um, so now, Renee, when they were doing this, they're releasing not just the patches, but they're also listing, you know, um, some CVEs around it and stuff like that. How does that affect your research team? Um, so we're constantly looking at, uh, you know, what the implications of those uh, CVEs are and ways that we can identify that type of traffic within our um, visibility, which is primarily DNS, but also within the rest of the security community, community and collaborating with them to understand um, what that time frame was. And you can see the uh, networks as they're being tested. There was a ton of security um, testing, both by customer red teams as well as um, as well as independent security researchers, because everyone wants to understand what is the the global impact of that so they could easily this vulnerability in particular the series of vulnerabilities that related to each other uh is really easy to execute and there was code on github the morning of of december 9th that people could then leverage um, and put into play so they are able to test and gather data whether or not they were going to be malicious or not you know whether they were trying to be malicious or not 
Um, and you can really see that kind of come through in DNS in, in particular, as well as uh, for those who have log4j um, collection on their on their additional network. And then we use those vulnerability uh, vulnerabilities to sort of watch that change in the network between you know December 9th as people are starting uh, to patch. But it's particularly hard, right? They have to continue testing their network. Well, and and you know that that I think is an important thing because. Um you know, publicly in the news and in the main press, there's a variety of timelines. And a lot of them would talk about how, you know, the first major exploit came out on, you know, this date or that date. Um, some of them uh, even announcing that the big exploits didn't come out until, you know, 15th, 20th, around there. But um, like you said, your research team, you're telling me ahead of time, they actually see that activity even ahead. I mean, there's been reports out there where some some people saw probes looking for this, you know, just trying to accumulate the list of who's susceptible as far back as like December 1st or December 2nd. So even before Apache announced this, the bad guys had somehow gotten win. And like you said, they may not have had the code ready to exploit it, but they were, I guess in business terminology, they were doing their market research <laughs> to see how big of an opportunity it was. Right. Yeah, the, the timeline is a little bit um, elongated and it has to do with it being an open source um, project. So you have uh, the Chinese researchers providing the information to Apache um, a little in, in late November. There's an open pull request on November 29th. So that actually becomes a very important, that's a public um, artifact. Um, a number of uh, security vendors now, including ourselves, have uh, activity that we believe is related to Log4Shell, um, which is the security name for exploiting uh, the Log4J vulnerability. About November 30th, December 1st, we're sitting in that November 30th camp. Um, so, but as far as mass exploitation goes uh, of the vulnerability, everyone is in agreement that the, that did not occur until uh, December 9th. Um, but it occurred very, very quickly. So we saw um, the crypto miners uh, in particular come in mass, as well as some other information stealers within three and a half hours of the um, global announcement. So very, very quick um, by the malicious actors as well. Yeah, the crypto miner one, that was the one that caught me. You know, I'm expecting, oh, ransomware people, you know, but crypto miners, it's like, Okay, they're going to find some way to make money off of this, and that's why. I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, I want to flip back a little bit more on the on the patching side. So, I mean, obviously, these discussions were taking place, you know, over a week before the actual announcement. So, hopefully, some smart heads were around it. That's probably why they had the patch the same day they made the announcement. They'd been working on it. But, um, Drews, now you deal with threat intel, which also is, you know, how people absorb it and use it and stuff like that. What are some of the reasons why patching just, they're just not patching it right away? What what holds it off? We talked a little bit about it being mission critical, but I mean, yeah. wouldn't that be like 24 hours in a lab and you should be able to roll out? What are the issues there? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, with the organization that you're dealing with and the software that's, a, you know, that you're, that you're you know, having to, uh, to work with. Uh, a more conservative organization is going to want to turn, you know, basically plug in and test and burn in. Uh, any new configuration for some period of time before they uh, before they end up rolling that out into production, and it's kind of like you know the the uh, you know the concept of you know basically that first step is to do no harm, and 
often when you have a patch that's kind of you know comes to market really quickly, it hasn't gone through the the degree of rigor that some of these organizations may want to have before they push something out into production. And that was actually kind of borne out to a degree, uh, even with this, when you saw how you know, the Log4j patch came out and then the day after another one and the day after another one. So it did take a couple of tries before they got you know all the exploits out and got the code stable to a level where, where a conservative organization would feel comfortable plugging that in. So you know, a lot of it has to do with that. And of course, you know, the it almost doesn't really matter if you're doing it because you're conservative or if you're doing it because you're not paying attention. You know, the the, the malicious actors out there are just going to try to see where they can go in, uh, regardless of what your motives were. Kind of the cure could be worse than the uh, the disaster. Actually, I remember um, again, as I alluded to earlier, I'm old, and I remember a time <laughs> when a desktop AV vendor rolled out a patch for their product, and it blue screened every machine you installed it on. Yeah. Yeah, um, and uh, which, I wonder how that got through QA, but yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing too is you know, like when you look at these larger, more conservative organizations, you know, there's a there's an ecosystem that they're dealing with. It's not just Log4j and Apache. You know, those you know those applications are often working with a lot of different things, and you can't expect the people who created the patch to you know be able to you know test with all of those different interdependencies. So. You know, they want to test this inside of a, a safe environment to make sure that they're not you know, going to be pushing something out that's you know, maybe not vulnerable anymore, but it makes the entire system go down. So you know, there's a, there's a cost-benefit analysis that they do when they're trying to figure out when to push that patch out. And just not all organizations are at the liberty to push things out immediately. Now, either from the enterprise side, which is where I'm, I'm, I'm noticing that's kind of where I'm, I'm putting you, Drews, to think from the enterprise side, Renee, from the threat actor side, how much do they tend to play uh, or does this concept of apathy play in where there's a lot of people and I, I know some in my community that I've talked to about this, they still haven't patched because their mentality is that, well, we just do that stuff on, you know, this particular schedule and who's going to target us? You know, how much is that playing into just them not patching? Yeah. Uh, I w overall, I would say a lot of people don't realize how um, important they are uh, as a victim um you know you think well i'm not that interesting um and oftentimes that will make you a much more interesting uh, <laughs> and the trajectory into other things particularly for information stealers and, and data breach situations where they can get personal information you know, even a low-level criminal um you know gang who's doing like malware as a service on mass uh, they only need to get into a very small percentage of of um, systems in order to make money uh, because the mathematics of just making a small amount. Um, well, and your crypto miners, your crypto miners, they're not stealing any data. They're just using your and small, medium businesses. Not many of them are running at 80% capacity. You know, they, you know, they have a server they might use real heavily, you know, for a specific function once in a while. Right, exactly. And one thing that, that you know you almost can't you know, stress too much is that the dynamics of, of the threats really changed substantially as soon as uh, ransomware came out. Because you know, prior to ransomware, you know you had to have you know, the, the people who were trying to penetrate your organization had to have a really good purpose of, of what the outcome was going to end up being, whether it's you know there's some data back there that's going to make it worth my while or or maybe they're doing it for ideological reasons or you know, or you know, uh, Go in there and um, and and disrupt something. There's usually some sort of a, a motive 
that was you know, that had to be high enough to make it worthwhile going through the effort. With ransomware, they discovered that it doesn't matter whether or not the data that you have is valuable to them, as long as it's valuable to you. So you know your photographs are not something that's going to be valuable to the attacker. But if we you know basically hold those things hostage, how much would you be prepared to spend? And that's the economic change. So you know, ransomware has kind of taken the entire thing on its ear, and as a result, you have a lot of people you know out there doing this type of attack because they realize that you know there is no such thing as the my organization isn't that interesting because there's definitely data in there that's important to you, whether it's important to anybody else or not. Yeah, there's uh, been a couple things on uh, on home NAS servers I've seen recently where ransomware, um, they've been attacking home NAS servers, encrypting all the data. And, you know, they know that the, it's not big change, but when you can get 50,000 people to pay 0 0.02 Bitcoin, you know, $500 US for it, that adds up pretty quick. Right. The other thing that's really interesting here is, uh, in terms of the apathy as well as uh, what's interesting to um, others <clears throat> is that in a lot of cases here, this attack <clears throat> this attack is allowing you to do an LDAP lookup. So what you are able to do is get a DNS query out, which says I was on this host and using and as this user, for example. Um, and if you're somewhat apathetic about things, you might look at that as like, well, so what? It was a DNS query. I didn't get any uh, remote attack. I don't have any malware. What's the malware that's on there? Um, it's just a it's just a DNS query that went out. But in fact, from the attacker's perspective, it's perfect recon. So when we are going to do a very sophisticated attack on a network, the most important thing to know is where are you. And, and then you think, what's, what else is here? So uh, you really want to know where you're located, and in particular, if you have a user, what you're doing. So those DNS queries, as they were going back out um, to the attackers as pings, uh, they're essentially like a ping, here's who I am, gives the attacker a recon that they can then, for slow moving uh, people who haven't updated their systems, can come back a month or two months later and then they know that attack is going to work and they know exactly where they're at. They can come at their own leisure. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that we were talking about or one of the kinds of things that could have been happening like a week before the actual announcement on the night. The stuff that we saw on December 1st and 2nd. Um, that's cool. Now, the other thing I've been surprised, um, well, not too surprised because I've seen it a lot, is how quickly they did respond. Once it actually, you know, the vulnerability came out the details, there was enough details they could actually develop an exploit because vulnerabilities aren't the problem. It's the exploit that's the problem. Um, and they responded pretty quickly. And, you know, again, going back to patching, you know, we're, we're still so slow about how we're able to respond to things like this. And the attackers, they just keep getting faster and faster. So I, I'm just continuing to be amazed. So you mentioned earlier, Renee, that your team was like collecting IOCs and, uh, you know, not you were sharing them because you guys published a number of alerts and briefs, uh, not just the ones in your blog. You guys uh, produce other reports as well, as well do other, you know, the security community is actually a little more interconnected. Everybody thinks of us as competitors, but the research teams like yours, you don't think of it that way. You know, you guys tend to work as a collective across vendor. Um, but um, you were also just monitoring all sorts of internet activity, looking for any kind of exploitation, correct? 
Yeah, exactly. So what we're going to go in and, and first, most importantly, is to try and get those indicators um, that uh, will allow our company, you know, our customers and others in the industry. We do operate very collaboratively. So trying to make sure that it, it, in an event like this, that as many people are protected um, as possible. And then we think about like, okay, what are other ways that um, we can identify new indicators that that weren't seen specifically, say, with a crypto miner, which is fairly easy to do. So we wrote our uh, analytics. Uh, everyone in security industry is doing similar, their own analytics to discover new things. That's helping us try to identify targeted attacks, which is really very important when you're working with you know high-end commercial entities and governments and stuff like we do. Um, we did identify com uh, targeted attacks within approximately four hours. So not only were the crypto miners out there sharing information, but we had what appear to be pretty significantly targeted attacks. And we work with other parts of the security industry to kind of validate that because your perspective on the world is just yours. So you can say like, hey, I feel like this is targeted. Do you see in your high, you know, high end customers, do you see similar or are you not seeing it? Um, and if we see something like across the board in a large number of different ways, then we know that's probably a low level actor or it might be um, a security vendor or a security reacher, all of which those folks have caused a lot of problems for us in the defense part of the industry, because a lot of times they're trying to hide who they are and they're just security researchers. So we invest a lot of effort to find out, well, they weren't really doing anything except for trying to figure out who is vulnerable. Um, so that was another major part. And then we're trying to figure out the timeline of uh, what happened when and whether or not anyone who acted between November 29th and December 9th, is, that is really suspicious, sketchy behavior and certainly good for law enforcement. So a, a lot of industry effort is on like, who operated in that in that time zone or in that timeline? Yeah, um, and and that's the other thing. Uh, you know, we had, like I mentioned earlier, we had a lot of uh, government regulatory agencies issuing warnings and alerts. But you know, we're always connected with them. Um, it's kind of a fine line, though, because you know, when you have big events like this, the whole security industry as a whole pulls together, does a lot. Um, I've noticed researchers tend to be probably the best. Whenever a company that I've worked for has had some sort of a humanitarian thing, we're going to do something, be a good community member, right? We're going to go do things for the community. The research team is always there. Others, not so much. They're a little more competitive. Um, but researchers just tend to be very community oriented, whether it's in their personal life or professional life. But there is a line still. And this is where we get to, Drews, your area of expertise, because you work with a lot of different vendors, um, uh, getting threat intelligence sources that get pulled into uh, your products. Because um, one of the things that's unique about your product is you know, almost every other security company, they say, oh, here's our, here's our product. And these are our, our, this is our labs. You know, we've got Renee running our labs and she's really good and her team's really smart. And we give you a threat feed. And they act like that's all you need. But in your group, we have Renee and really smart people that work for her and they provide various threat intelligence, you know, that goes into our product. But you also pull a lot of stuff from other sources as well. Um, how does that get, does that get impacted or affected during times like this? Or is it just business as normal for you? No, it's absolutely. And, and honestly, there's a, uh, 
if you are a large organization or any size organization, actually, uh, you know, you're trying to create a footprint of security uh, that's going to protect you on different levels. And, and your organization is going to be much better protected if all those tools are sharing the data than they are if they're all operating in their own individual silos. Everybody has their individual uh, strengths. When you, if you actually went through and took a look at the at the threat feeds of a number of different vendors, you're going to discover that you know uh, when when something is brand new, there's actually very little overlap you know in those early days, and then ultimately you'll see uh, all the different vendors will start to know about stuff, and it'll end up being common knowledge. But you know, as a result, if you're trying to defend your organization, the more different sources that you can get, the better. Plus, a lot of different uh, circumstances, you know, a lot of different security products will defend at different points of your network. Not everything has the same point of visibility. Not everybody can view everything all at the same time. So if you, if you have good threat intel and you can use, utilize that threat intel on your endpoint and on your IDS and on your DNS and on you know, whatever the different inside of your firewall, if you can you know, utilize that same threat until you know, across everything, you're always going to be better protected than you would if you're just relying exclusively on one source or one product. Well, and that's what you use to fill that gap between vulnerability announced and, and even patch availability. <laughs> but then, exactly. you know, uh, I've worked with some companies that they cannot roll out a patch for a minimum of 30 days absolute yeah. minimum 30 days. And that's a patch if they can focus on it. But in this case, we have a vulnerability comes out and all of a sudden you have a dozen vendors contacting you say, we use that and here's our update. That's another thing to test. They now have a dozen things they have to test and they just don't have the bandwidth. And so this is where Renee's team where, you know, they don't just say, hey, well, there's a patch for it. We're going to move on and look for other things. You're looking for exploits, constantly looking for how they're changing, evolving. Like you said, I think it started with uh, the bit mine, Bitcoin miners first, and then it just kind of moved. I, I, that still amazes me how it goes from one group to another <laughs> group. It's like they're coordinating as well. Okay, we get first dibs, you know, we saw it first or something. And eventually, you know, people will get patched. Well, I don't know. There's still people running on Java versions that are over a year old right now, I'm sure. <laughs> and, and one of the good things that, you know, as you mentioned there is, you know, when they announced the exploit they and, and the vulnerability, uh, you know, almost immediately they also announced a, a snort rule and a Suricata rule to, to be able to look at people who are trying to get inside of your organization. So if you find yourself as being one of those organizations that have to, you know, have that 30-day um, uh, moratorium on, on deploying things where you you have to have, go through that test cycle. The the only way that you can kind of defend yourself in the meantime is to try to make sure that you've got the defenses set up. If you can't stop it, you know at least let's see if I can block the the vulnerability in the meantime. So you can do that. You know with an IDS, you can do that through uh, through a snort rule. You know when it comes to a lot of other threat intelligence, like you know what um, what Renee's been able to pull out is we're looking for individual you know. Um, threat actors who are trying to use that. So, you know, we will constantly be adding new threat intelligence, new host names, new, you know, new details about new threat actors who are trying to use that as well. So if you keep everything up to date, you're going to be, you know, uh, to, a, to a great extent, you're going to be protected. But obviously, the you know, there's nothing that uh, that satisfies better than, than pushing out that patch. So 
at least this gives you a stopgap measure that you can implement until you can actually do that. Yeah. And the IOCs I wanted to talk about, uh, I wanted to clarify, because we've talked about them and you've listed them and Renee's listed them, but I want to break them up. There's two basic kinds of IOCs that I think the audience really needs to be aware of. We're not just talking about indicators to help you identify, hey, there's a piece of malware that, you know, it, it's not all about the malware. In fact, in most cases, what we're really, our real opportunity is to identify the activity because of its communications. That's why you mentioned DNS. Uh, we're talking about, you know, monitoring this, not just on the endpoint. Endpoint, we have to talk about a lot more today because we're in a COVID world where most people are working remote, right? So, right. But, but we're really not talking about the endpoint, which is traditionally where you catch the malware. So when we talk endpoint even, we wanna make sure, can you detect on your mobile endpoints, you know, somebody working from home, where is their system communicating? And it's not just URLs, it's not just web filtering, it's all the communication visibility you can get is, is gonna be vital, I think. So Renee, any, uh, anything on that particular aspect you wanna comment? We're just about out of time, but I wanna give you a last chance to, to fill in any gaps or correct me. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, <clears throat> no, I don't have a correction there. I think the the one comment in the stance that we've taken um, to protect you know majority of our customers, and I do recommend for everybody, is um, even if this even if we have uh, products that we know are related to vulnerability scanners and that are actually designed and and needed um, for the vulnerability of the red team community. So interact.sh uh, is is one of those. Um, DNSlogs.cn is another one that's used for tracking. <clears throat> Those are are freely available and being widely used by uh, suspicious and malicious actors as well. So <clears throat> the attitude right now is to block all of that behavior. And then if you your your company is red teaming and you know that you're going to use one of those products, then you can allow yourself there, or you can create your own special domain um, and, and make sure that you allow that as a whole. But overall, I would uh, not generically allow things to come through your network right now for the next couple of months, at least, just because they're scanners, for example. Um, they're pretty risky at this point. Yeah. and. Um... Yeah, I, I, I want to emphasize you said months there. <laughs> we're, not, we're not typically used to thinking that, even though, I mean, the stats keep coming out, depending on who you're listening to, the average dwell time is 190 days, or it could be 300 days. I saw 250. Everybody's got a different number, but it is months that these things mm -hmm. are, are happening. And uh, even if you've got products that they don't have the IOCs today, as new information comes out, like you said, your own researchers, is, as they learn something new, they go back in time and find things that, that help them identify you know, or develop other IOCs. So um, th this has been very, very good, very revealing. But uh, as is usual, as Drews knows from having been on the show before, we're running out of time before we've run out of things to talk about. But Renee, I wanna thank you especially for joining us today and representing uh, your Threat Labs team. Uh, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Drews, thank you for uh, not getting tired of being here. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Bob. It's always a pleasure. So, <laughs> All right. And I want to thank all of our viewers and listeners for their time. Join us next time as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity and ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk. <laughs>